Thanks for checking out this podcast. Remember, it's presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, Target Center, or XL Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota baseball, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. And Ticket King can take care of you for out-of-town concerts, sporting events, and more. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Uh, so we are at Target Field right now. In fact, these are first world problems, but... Because there's no games here for six days. The heat's not really on, and it's 28 degrees or something, or it's, I don't know, it's around freezing. So we've tucked ourselves away in the media dining room area right now, the upstairs where media members scarf down hot dogs. Mm-hmm. And it's popcorn. And popcorn, yes. And sometimes kettle chips, I believe, they also have in here. And so we are tucked away in the corner of a dark and dimly lit Peg's Cafe. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a couple things at you. I don't like to overanalyze game one of a 162-game season, okay? It's one of my biggest pet peeves in sports. <laughs> I get on Judd, my radio co-host, all the time for his hockey takes, one, one, one game in which anyone can beat anyone, which is what baseball and hockey are, and we're going to overanalyze it like it's football. That's yes. what our culture has become here. But I think when you see certain things that play to bigger trends or things that you were nervous about, and, and I'll just cut right to the chase, Casey Feen. I didn't love them giving him a couple million dollars. I didn't love them tendering him a contract in the offseason. He was one of the most hittable pitchers in the entire league last year. In fact, I went on fan graphs and looked this up yesterday. Mm-hmm. Of American League, no, I believe it was both leagues, um, of relief pitchers that threw at least 40 innings last year. He's one of the five most hittable guys, and two of the other ones were Blaine Boyer and Brian Dunsing. So it, in terms of contact percentage. Yeah, I was going to say define hittable. Strikeout rate or uh, a swing and miss rate or contact rate sure. on the other side. Okay. And so that, you know, people wonder, well, why was Casey Fiend not quite as effective last year? Why did he look more hittable? Well, he, he didn't just look more hittable. He was more hittable. He was one of the most hittable pitchers mm-hmm. in the entire league. And I don't know if it's because the league is caught up to his two pitches or if he just – isn't throwing them with as much authority and, and zest as he was a couple of years ago. But I watch him against the Orioles in game one, yeah. and that was the definition of hittable. Everything he's throwing is just a line drive, a hard hit ball here and there. And of all the guys you could be nervous about once you get past Jepson and May and Glenn Perkins, Casey Fien is really high on my list. I'm actually pretty cool with Ryan Presley. He's got, he's got good stuff, mm-hmm. mid-90s, mm-hmm. some sink, good breaking ball. Casey Fien is just grinding to get hitters off balance and to get hitters to swing and miss right now. Two things um, sort of in Fien's defense, although I don't mean to just lay a blanket defense. He probably is hittable in terms of contact percentage, um, but, you know, things like I, I also look at, I think line drive rate matters. I think, you know, we got to pay attention to how hard people are hitting the ball and pay attention to are they falling for hits? Because some guys, uh, Kyle Gibson up until, like, the stretch run of last year uh, was really, I mean, he must have been one of the most hittable, by this definition, starters in all of baseball. I mean, contact percentages are way up there. Now a lot of guys are getting weak contact. Infield pop-ups are high for Gibson. He gets ground balls. Um, Actually, I don't know. I'd have to go check on his infield fly ball rate, but... um, we're yeah. not going to pause the podcast, right. by no, the way. It's, it's not so you worth can go look me. up an infield fly ball. Right? I actually have it in my binder. You could binder. have made it up, and most of the listeners wouldn't have even known. I have it in my binder here <laughs> behind me, but I won't shuffle through those papers. Uh, but, you know, and, and so I think there's a difference between contact percentage and how hittable a pitcher is. And in Casey Fiend's specific case, two things are working against him in terms of how much contact opposing batters get against him. His pitches don't move that much, and he only throws strikes. So 
if you're a, an opposing batter getting up in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning, you're looking for a guy that's going to be around the strike zone. You're right. looking to impact the game. And I would be willing to bet that Casey Fien doesn't go deep in a whole lot of counts. I mean, sometimes he might get battles, and sometimes he might walk guys, but he doesn't walk very many guys. Um, I'd be willing to bet that over the past two seasons, he's not in very many three-ball counts. So it's guys up there hacking because they know they're going to get a strike, and they know it's not going to move that much. Sure. And they know it's not 98. You know. So my my argument would be, and I, I again, I, you make a good point. That, and then I have another one, but I'll I'll, I'll oh, hear you out well, here. Well, all all I'll just make it quick then. I don't want my relievers allowing a lot of contact in general because the more when, when you get to that sixth, seventh, eighth innings. Mm-hmm. And you're in close games. Presumably, Casey Fiend's going to pitch in a lot of three to two, zero to zero type games. Now, game one was a little. You had you had to go through six different relievers just yeah. because um, the and rain situation. I will blame the Twins for this in a second. Uh, I'll get to why I think they screwed themselves on that a little bit. But my main point is, I want more swings and misses from my relief yeah. pitchers than the Twins are giving me over the past few years. Definitely. And Fiend plays into that last year. I want my pitchers in general to be like that. I don't want a lot of specifically hard hit, but any hits. Uh, I, you know, yeah, a ground ball is going to turn into an out more often than not, but a strikeout's almost never going to turn into it. Uh, or I said that wrong. <laughs> a ground ball will turn into a hit every once in a while. A strikeout will almost never lead to somebody getting on base. Unless you always spike your breaking ball and get swings and misses. And, and your catcher wasn't yourself. ready for it. Your catcher sucks. Yeah, you're like, dude, you <laughs> called a spike curveball. I bounced it on the plate. You better block that. Um, I, I think so that, that works against Casey Fien. And the other part is, and whether this is fair or unfair, the Twins certainly are evaluating Casey Fien as a whole on – they evaluate him differently than when, when he's hurt. And what I mean by that is the past two years, at the beginning of the year, when he was healthy, he was effective. After he hit the DL last year, he was pretty much that reliever that you're scared of, the guy that you don't want in close situations. And rightfully so. He hasn't been good. Two years ago it was the same thing. Casey Fien wore down by going out, whether it was way too much or mm-hmm. way too often or not enough rep, whatever it was, Casey Fien wore down his shoulder got hurt both years. Now, I think you can look at this one of two ways. If you are a Twins fan, you can be mad and say, man, like, this guy's kind of sucked for two years. Why are we giving him a contract? I'd rather see Nick Birdie or I'd rather see even Alex Meyer, whatever. I want someone else to take that spot. Or here's a novel concept. Go spend some money in the free agent market. But I think what the Twins are doing, and, and, and I haven't got this from the Twins. This is just my sort of educated guess looking at the situation they're saying, when Casey Fien is healthy, we like Casey Fien. We would like to keep Casey Fien, and we would like to keep Casey Fien healthy. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that I think they're looking at, you're looking at the totality of the picture. I think you could argue that's fair, looking at the whole picture of when he was hurt and how effective he was. The Twins are probably giving a little bit more weight to his healthy performance than you are here. Sure. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong. But I think it's a difference of perspective that when Casey Fiend's healthy, he's better than the Casey Fiend we've seen sure. the past two years. Of course, wearing down as the workload increases and you get closer that's to 30 and past 30, that's all part of it. You're that's not just going to magically be healthy. Glenn yeah. Perkins is realizing that at, at age 33. Exactly. And in Fiend's case, if you're not among the elite relievers in the eighth or ninth innings, yeah. a lot of times your shelf life for being effective might only be three or four years. Jared Burton. And then it's kind of over because yeah. you don't have either – you don't have a wipeout pitch, or maybe it, it took until you were 29 years old before you really figured it out, and now you get to be 30, 31, 32, and, you know, it's already the window's closing. It's totally possible that Casey Fiend's not in this bullpen by the end of the year. I would accept that possibility. Um, I think it's also possible that he's better than what he's been the past two years. So w- I, I want to wait and see how that goes. But I will say the Twins made a weird decision that I think might have cost them game one. I mean, not to overanalyze one game at a time because... I love how we've both gone with the Cavett. We said, I don't want to overanalyze <laughs> game one, but we've just spent 15 minutes yeah. overanalyzing game one. I don't want to talk too much about game one, but in the sixth <laughs> inning with two outs and runners on first and third... Unacceptable. Right? Um, <laughs> it is weird the way the Twins built their bullpen. Right? They basically... And I made no bones about this on the last podcast. They gifted Michael Tonkin a job. Michael Tonkin probably shouldn't have a job in the bullpen 
if you were evaluating yeah. based on merit. Yeah, you and I are both on the same page. Right. I don't like the bullpen. Right. As a, I don't like the bullpen compared to contending bullpens. Sure. So, okay, Tompkins had some great minor league numbers, and I, I'll give him that. I would also say that you'd like to see something in the big leagues, and the Twins haven't given him much of a run. But if this was a prove-it spring for him, he did the exact opposite, and the Twins still said, well, all right, but whatever, you're coming north, you're out of options. Yeah. So you are on this team, and there's <laughs> no question he is on the team because he's out of minor league options. If he had a minor league option, you're telling me he's still the seventh man in the bullpen? No way. So the reason that I say they kind of blew that, and it sucks that the weather turned out the way that it did, but Michael Tonkin's their long man. I think, generally speaking, long men are overrated. You don't really need one to have a good bullpen. Unless the chief meteorologist at the ballpark you're playing in is terrible. He's also the chief beer vendor at the ballpark you're playing in and needs to find some way to keep people there occupied for yeah. three hours. And so, uh, you know, they've had Tonkin pitches, something like 53 pitches on the Saturday before Monday's opening day. And are you planning for Irvin Santana to get bounced after two innings? No. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. He was stretched out late. It's okay, now you're the long man. He threw 53 pitches. He was available, it sounded like, out of the bullpen, yeah. but only as protection. In a normal case, maybe you don't turn to a long guy like that in a tie game in the second inning, but that's exactly what the Orioles did. See, they probably didn't figure they needed him on Monday. They figured, I, we'll stretch him out on Saturday. And that's a problem. And on Monday, if, if worst-case scenario, Irvin Santana gets mm-hmm. shelled, we'll just patchwork with the other guys and off day get, Tuesday. Exactly. But that's a problem because game one of 162 counts just as much as game 162 of 162. No, they didn't. Of course, the Orioles pitchers were all throwing 107 miles an hour, apparently, because yeah. <laughs> the Twins couldn't get a, couldn't make contact for right. three hours or yeah. for five hours. And so, so it well, might not have mattered either way. Some but. of that was the rain, and they were in the clubhouse. Hard to make contact from the clubhouse. But to, all I'm saying, by making that decision late, by screwing up the decision to not have a long man, and then making Michael Tonkin your de facto long man, you weren't ready for Monday's game. That's just plain and simple. They were unprepared for Monday's game. They did not have the roster. If you were going to say, all right, you just have to win opening day, they would have treated the spring much differently. They would have figured out if Tyler Duffy could be there or whatever, and uh, they would have had a long guy more ready to go. Instead, they were just kind of like, well, all right, we'll get Michael Tonkin stretched out. He'll be kind of ready by, we think he could be ready to throw a couple innings Wednesday. Well, you got a game on Monday. And so by not sort of preparing for that, it sounds trivial, it's a very small thing, but it annoys me that the Twins don't pay attention at the margins of these little roster decisions. Last year, when they'd leave, so it was, I think it was Eduardo Escobar. He hit the paternity list and he only missed one game. Great, good for Eduardo Escobar. You should go be with your family when you're having a child. I'm not blaming Eduardo Escobar for being gone, but the Twins didn't call somebody up to replace him. They played with 24 guys. Sure. And... Does that matter in the in the like one game, one inning? Maybe not. It might not. But in Monday's case, that bit them. I think they should be paying more attention to the little things on their roster because I bet you the Orioles are paying attention to that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, in fact, it'll be interesting. Buck Showalter, kind of known with Baltimore for taking mm-hmm. rosters that on paper, you look at the roster and you say, eh, uh, eh, and they wind up contending. Right. And they're in it until September sometime. With this roster, though, it's a lot of mashers, aging guys on offense, J.J. Hardy, Pablo Sandoval, Pablo, Sandoval, Pablo um, Pedro Alvarez. Uh, Pedro Alvarez. Yeah. I'm just mixing up Hispanic names now. It's very good. <laughs> Pablo Pedro. Just racially profiling, apparently. But, <laughs> so their, li- their lineup, a lot of thumpers, small yeah. ballpark. I see what they're doing. You've got Mark Trumbo in right field. It's kind of similar to what the Twins are doing. Let's just put, put a log in right field and see if he can yeah. hit 30-plus home runs. And their pitching staff, Chris Tillman is your number one starter, and then you got a couple of reclamation projects, Ubaldo still on the roster. I'll be curious to see if Buck Showalter can work magic with this particular Orioles team. Yeah, and early in the year, too, it's not you're not going to get as much of this shuffling, but I've talked to you on, the, on your radio show about this in the past, how when I was there, I covered the Orioles for one summer for MLB.com. I was their intern out there. Um, the summer of 2013... Um, I got to experience firsthand the Showalter magic. Mm-hmm. And Dan Duquette's the GM, but make no bones about it, Buck Showalter runs that roster. I mean, I'm sure they have conversations, just like Paul Molitor and Terry Ryan have conversations. But um, if Paul Molitor needs a bench bat, well, Terry's not going to be defiant. I mean, they, yeah. generally they come to a consensus. In Baltimore, Buck runs the show. And it was amazing to me 
how well they manipulated their roster. And basically, I, I'm not going to say cheated because it's within the rules, but the way that they handled things. That, well, we just had a long guy throw four innings, and he's the 25th man on the roster. Well, the Yankees are in town. And here's what I'm talking about, sort of a sense of urgency that's important that the Twins didn't have this time around. Um, if they miss the playoffs by one game, I'm going to remind you about game one, how they didn't have a long guy ready just because of poor planning. But uh, I don't foresee that happening, so we'll see. Um, the Yankees are in town. We just had a long guy who's the 25th man who's got two minor league options left. He threw four innings the night before and won't be able to help us the rest of this series. But we need to beat the Yankees two out of three. We're not going to carry a dead arm in the bullpen. You're either going to send him to the minor leagues or you're going to come up with some injury because everybody's got some injury at some time of the year. Oh, strained right forearm. Yeah, but he could go spend two weeks in the minor leagues, go to Norfolk in Perfect. the case of the Orioles. Mm-hmm. Somebody else comes up. Now you, you have a fresh arm. That a, guy can go back if he needs to in two weeks. Get a fresh arm, and if he's your 25th man and you don't need him for the Yankee series, yeah. fine. At least you protected yourself against that possibility. Sure. Your the last, Orioles were great at that. Your last bench spot or two and your last, I would say there's three or four spots on a 25-man roster let's say, two on your offensive bench and then two guys in your bullpen, mm-hmm. you could treat them almost like relegation in soccer. Okay, you're... Uh, you, Don't need you. So for now, you're going to go to this other league over here, mm-hmm. and then and then your minor league squad over here is a, ta- it's a taxi squad for your major leaguers. So yep. really, you can almost have a 30-man roster or a 29-man roster yeah. in which four or five guys are on your taxi squad and you can manipulate up and down. And the twins, I love that concept. And the Twins aren't good at doing that. They haven't in the past. They, I've talked to people in the front office. They don't like the concept of taxi squatting guys. I thought Oswaldo Arcia should have been dragged around a couple of road trips last year just in case you needed to pull somebody up. I think yeah. the purpose of a baseball organization is to win games in the majors. I think that's got to be your sole focus. And for the Twins, a lot of times it's, Mm, yeah, but taxi squatting's got a lot of logistical problems. And I, and I get that. I'm, I'm not saying it'd be the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, you book, I'm saying, booking flights that sometimes take four hours, five or hours. Or jerking and, a young guy around, hey, you're 22 and you're doing kind of well, but we're going to take you off your team away from what you're kind of comfortable with. You're going to fly, and we might not promote you. You might never be on the major league roster. That sucks, like, on a personal level, professionally. Like, that, that sucks for the kid, but... It gives you the best chance to win. It, mm-hmm. it improves your percentage chances by even if it's a fraction of a percent, it's worth it to me in my mind. The Twins haven't seen it that way in years past. Um, it, on the Orioles, though, I, I had a point that you were talking about their sort of fungible pieces at the back of the bench or in the bullpen. With the Twins, it's really not. Think about this roster, the way it's constructed right now. Well, the bench isn't, no. Oswaldo Arcia can't go down. Yep. He could hit the DL if he Danny gets hurt. Danny Santana. Danny Santana can't go down. You're not sending John Ryan Murphy because who's the next catcher in the system? Sure. Uh, Eduardo Nunez is on a contract. He doesn't have minor league options. He's not a guy you're going to send out. So their bench is locked unless they make some roster And you, your argument would be Michael Tonkin also out of options. I don't treat him like he's out of options. If, if you need to send him on waivers and yeah. you risk losing him. Now, if it's a case of, oh, we can't use Tonkin for a couple days because he just pitched 53 pitches mm-hmm. in a long roll, then you don't have the luxury with a guy right. like that of sending him to AAA because right. you're probably going to lose him and you know what? the waiver process. And personally... I think that's fine, but secondarily, if you are intent on keeping people like that or keeping like Rule 5 guys, that's important to have them. Last year, I didn't blame them one day for keeping J.R. Graham on the roster. Now you got a live arm in your system and see how it goes. I'm on the record on our show. I think he comes up at some point and makes a pretty big impact. I don't think he becomes your eighth inning guy, but I I like J.R. Graham's stuff. Mm -hmm. I think another year of experience, now he gets to go get some seasoning in the minor leagues. I think young, live arm, took it very seriously this offseason yep. and cut some weight off the frame. I am curious to see him in the big leagues again. I'm not sure he'll be a big impact guy this year, but he's definitely one of the names in the bin of right-hand power arms that the Twins now have, yep. which they didn't have three years ago. Um, so I think they're moving in the right direction in a lot of those places. But um, in the case of Michael Tonkin, if it was in June and he threw 53 pitches in a major league game to get you through the game... I'm not saying you have to kick him off the roster. Uh, for this, in this case, he didn't need to throw those 53 pitches on Monday or on, on Saturday, whatever it was. You know, he, it's not the kind of thing that he needed to be unavailable for day one. You should have you have all off season to get 25 players available, and the Twins failed to do that on Monday. A big reason why they lost. I'm not saying it's the only reason, obviously, but uh, the bullpen did have to go seven innings and kind of unraveled on them. Uh, now that we've just crapped all over the Twins' bullpen in game one of 162, I want to 
issue out some praise and maybe calm some people down. Buxton struck out three times in that game. He did. And uh, I, although, like I said earlier in this podcast, all the Twins hitters looked, except for Maurer had a couple of hits, but most of the Twins hitters, except for Maurer and Eduardo Escobar, just looked like, whoa, uh, are the Orioles firing fastballs out of a bazooka? <laughs> what is happening? Even Maurer couldn't get around on the first Tillman fastball. and I think it was a one-and-two pitch. He yeah. swung right through it. But on Byron Buxton... He's already a gold-glove caliber center fielder. He covers more range than almost anyone out there. Mm-hmm. He appears to take pretty good routes for the most part, and when he doesn't, he can make up for it more than other center fielders and outfielders. Yep. I compare him, there's a lot of shortstops like, like what I'm about to describe. The guy who really doesn't have a clue yet at the plate, but gives you positive value overall because of how great he is defensively at a premium position. Mm-hmm. Guys like Andrelton Simmons who's with the Angels right now, was with the Braves for a long time. He's 26 years old. He had one pretty good offensive year where he hit double-digit home runs a couple years ago. But for the most part, he's one of the worst everyday hitters in baseball. Brendan Ryan was like that for a long time as a starting shortstop. But they're so good defensively at such an important position, you can kind of bury them 8th or ninth in your lineup and be fine. That's what Buxton is right now to me. The difference is when you compare him to Andrelton Simmons or Brendan Ryan or Clint Barmas was like that for a long time at shortstop. He has the upside offensively of an MVP candidate. That's the skill set he's working with. Now, does it translate at some point? We'll see. So if Byron Buxton goes through and he's a liability on offense, but he hits enough, he hits in the low 200s and just hits enough to stay in the lineup because he's so great in center field, I think that still makes a positive impact on this team. Plus, you've got the luxury... Most teams don't have two formidable offensive middle infielders. Brian Dozier is one of the best hitting second basemen in the entire league. Eduardo Escobar, probably between 7th and 12th somewhere in terms of offensive shortstops. He's going to hit 30-plus doubles. He slugs, hit two doubles in the opener. Most teams don't have that much offense at those two middle infield positions, which gives you maybe the leeway to put a non-offensive player at center field or at some other position. So I'm... I'm okay with him batting ninth, with him taking a month and a half to figure out things offensively. My guess is if it's going to click for him, it might happen sometime in May, maybe toward the end of May, once he gets 300 plate appearances, career under his belt, and then we'll see if he takes off. But if he's tracking down fly balls and he's helping the pitchers, you can live with this right now. Well, two places you got to cover up because your first baseman's not hitting like a first baseman either. Hey, he had so, two hits in the opener. I know he did. And yeah, he's leading the I team am. in batting average. I, I am on the record as Hot having, start. I am predicting a break, uh, not breakout, a bounce back year for Joe Maurer. I, I said, and I've even put a number on it. I said I wouldn't be surprised if he gets back up into the 370 on base percentage, 380. That would be um, enormous for this team. Yeah, and, and that'd be huge. If he's their two hitter, you get Brian Dozier getting on base. Let's say Brian Dozier goes back to the on-base threat that he was two years ago, not last year, because the slump last year just cratered his on-base percentage. If I'm remembering the numbers right off the top of my head, and they're in that paper binder, but I'm not going to dig through it, <laughs> I think last season Brian Dozier had a 307 on-base percentage, and I think the year before that he had a 345 on-base percentage. If he's that guy hitting... I don't even care if he only hits 20 home runs, whatever it is. It, the home runs are great out of Brian Dozier, but if he gets on base at the top of the order, plays decent-ish defense, although I think his defense even took a step backwards last year. Um, if he is that guy at the top of the order and Joe Maurer gets on base, 370, 375, 380, in front of Miguel Sano, this offense is going to score a lot of runs, and that's before mentioning guys like Trevor Plouffe and Byung-Ho Park, who are nice role players the way I see it. Uh, Joe Maurer might quietly be like kind of the linchpin. I mean, it sounds weird to say for a $23 million guy, he shouldn't be flying under the radar. But if Joe Maurer's good again, not, not great again, if he's good again, that's a big sign for this offense. They, they place so much emphasis on him being a number three hitting run producer last year, and he was great in those batting average with runners in scoring position mm-hmm. situations. Which was weird. My own, it, it is weird, and it's not something that's going to be repeatable long-term. Like, why couldn't Joe Maurer hit with the bases empty, but he was Superman with guys on yeah, it's You'd rather have it that way than the <laughs> other way around. But <laughs> yeah. my message to him, not that I know more than Tom Bernanski does, would be Frequent subscriber to the podcast, though, so lay it on him. Get on base. Yeah. Whether you have to go Roger Dorn on it and lean into some pitches, that's a major league reference that you wouldn't get because you've never seen the movie. I'm afraid not. Um, 
then whatever you have to do, draw walks, singles. Yeah. I, he slapped a couple of the outfield yesterday. Yeah. Great. Okay. Right. That's all you and want it, to be doing. It's it's better contact, too. I mean, that's anecdotal, and it's a very small sample size, obviously. But I'll be curious to watch it. Last year, I remember at the beginning of the year, and uh, – some of my more astute Twitter followers, which I've got a ton, I'll brag about that real quick. People that share baseball insights with me, I actually appreciate that, whether it's from the Five Thoughts column or from the podcast. People are like, hey, did you see this in the game? And either I did or didn't, um, but they're either cluing me in or now we're talking about something that's sort of like second level, and that's a ton of fun. That's really cool. Um, someone mentioned, well, Maurer's got to be close to breaking out. His line drive rate is great right now. We mean it, right now. This was last May. Oh, last I'll say, I'll say okay. like May 1st or whatever. Okay. Um, that's just a total guess. But sure. like the first month, month and a half of the season, Maurer was hitting a lot of line drives. And it was true. His line drive rate was good. You expected maybe his batted balls. Here's another stats geek reference for you. The batting average on balls in play was going to go up soon because, man, he's hitting the ball. He's hitting it so hard, right? He's got all these line drives. But like, I got to tell you, and I'm not at most road games, but when I was at Target Field for the home games. Uh, and you can see it on TV a little bit, but it's hard to tell like how well a ball is hit unless yeah, you've got the exit I velocity. I know where you're going with this. This is Joe Maurer's right. line drives were like, like I was Flares. getting out there with my weak little JV arm and throwing yeah. it into the outfield. They were, they were not smoking authoritative line drives. I'm, I'll be curious to see if Maurer gets back to that, because when Maurer was Maurer, man, you would not want to get in front of a ball that was coming off of his bat. Yeah, I remember, I wonder if I can find this during the podcast here. I remember looking up a chunk of Joe Maurer's, his spray chart. Sure. On a, it was a website like Texas Leaguers where you can yep. look up where each batted ball landed in the outfield. And there were only a small handful of balls Outside of home runs, you showed that me went this. over the outfielders' heads. Yeah, yeah I remember so that. So everything was just a flare in front of the outfielders. Yep. And some of those would be classified because it's just a guy logging line drive, fly ball, ground ball, mm-hmm. and there might be some scores at different ballparks that view. Like at Target Field, I don't know who does that at Target Field, but maybe the guy who tracks line drives, ground balls, and fly balls is a little more lenient when Maurer or, flares one to left. Or think about it. If he hits a ball over the shortstop's head, it's 10 feet over the shortstop's head, so he's not going to catch it. But it's like softly hit. Yeah. But it's not high enough to be a fly ball. Well, that's a line drive. I've, I've heard people call him fliners or like yes. things like that. And that. That should be an official category. Yeah, I know. His he's leading the league in fliner rate. <laughs> he would have. I swear, <laughs> last April, Joe Maurer would have led the world in fliners. But, you know, and... It's that's it's good that we're looking at the stats. It's good that we're trying to figure out, hey, his line drive rate is good, so I think he's a good hitter. Yeah. Hey, Miguel Sano, does he strike out a lot? Yeah, but guess what? His exit velocity is also second in the world to Mike Stanton. That means he's crushing baseballs. That's a good sign, even if he strikes out a lot. He's also drawing a lot of walks. He's also taking a lot of bad pitches outside of the strike zone. These are all good signs that don't necessarily reflect in his two sixty nine batting average. You can learn a lot more from the numbers um, but in this case, I think the numbers were lying to us a little bit. Uh, I do wonder, just after seeing him just a little bit in Fort Myers, I think Joe Maurer's hitting the ball differently. And I don't know how to quantify that. I don't know how to better explain it. I'm sure some listeners are scoffing at that notion. But the way I see it is Joe Maurer's hitting better right now than he was at this time last year. I think, I think it's not unreasonable to expect Joe Maurer to take yeah. a step forward, even though he's 33. This lineup has three really interesting, either unknown or not well-known quantities. Maurer's one of them. Byung-Ho Park and Byron Buxton are the other ones. Yeah, he just took my thunder. I'm going to give you all three of those. Yeah, I just It's a bump set. Go yeah. ahead and spike it. <laughs> my spike is that I loved your point on that Buxton is going to add value right now. I think he does. I think that um, you worry a little bit if he's struggling so badly at the plate. Does that affect him in the field? In the past, it hasn't. That's huge. The difference between Byron Buxton and, um, to use some Twins examples of, like, wet newspaper hitting shortstops, Pedro Florimone, oh my um, gosh. Adam Everett. Yeah. The guys are like, okay, just go. You better catch everything because we know you're going to get one hit a week. Yeah. And if that's the case, you got to add some defensive value. Byron Buxton already is that, but in the minor leagues, instead of being a wet newspaper flinging shortstop, he was a great offensive player. So I, just to circle back on your point on one of those enigmas, 
I think eventually Byron Buxton does become a very good major league hitter, and suddenly we're laughing at the fact that we're questioning if this would if this would come to fruition. People are already worried about Buxton. I would say, don't worry about that. Well, you know, uh, Royce, he brought up a great, he tweeted this on Friday, and I 100% agree that for some reason in this town. Yeah, I saw this. Teddy Bridgewater is viewed as, oh, can't miss. You know, he's already on, he's on the path. He's the guy. But there's a big skepticism regarding Byron Buxton. And it's, I think it's because there's more blind faith and, and optimism mm-hmm. with the Vikings, and there's more of a cloud of negativity and pessimism regarding the Twins. But make no mistake, of the two of them, the one who clearly has the best upside and the best chance to become one of the best players in the league mm-hmm. is Byron Buxton. But Yeah, by a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, to me... That could just be a product of how we watch the sports at, in 2016. I mean, how many times can Teddy Bridgewater fail in a year? How, how many times can he publicly fail in a year? Uh, let's see if he drops back. Well, he'll drop back. He dropped back 450 times last year. Yeah, and and some of those are handoffs. Uh, or, well, he or, threw 450 I mean, passes last check year. Checkdowns and dump offs and things like yeah. that. I, I shouldn't say handoffs, but. But he only threw like nine interceptions or something, which is that would be considered a big failure for a quarterback. Or an incomplete pass or way overthrowing yeah. Mike Wallace, who's streaking down the sideline wide open. Those are public failures. Byron Buxton has the opportunity to fail 20 times in a week on TV publicly. Um, and that's not to include defense. I can't really think of any times that he made a glaring mistake on defense last year. But he, There's a chance he might, if, if he drops a ball in the alley or something, that he would drop a ball that 20 center fielders wouldn't even come within three feet sure. of. Absolutely. Could, make, could be charged with an error on a ball that 20 center fielders totally wouldn't possible. come near enough to be even considered for an error. Totally possible. And we've got to get better at evaluating defense, I think, collectively. But uh, to, to me, yeah, I think Pat, Pat's spot on with that. Um, I, I think the upside is there. I think we've laid that out. We will continue to do that in future podcasts. But I pump the brake on the paranoia over Buxton. Somebody mentioned... They tweeted me, and I just, I mean, I flat-out disagree, but I think most listeners probably disagree, too. Said, boy, I think it was Sano and Buxton at the time he tweeted this. Or like, they were like 0 for 7 with five strikeouts between the two of them. He said, well, I wouldn't be surprised to see either of these guys in the minors this year. Right? Oh, in AAA. Of course. Said, okay. Hold would, on would, a second. Would that person have tweeted that an hour before? <laughs> I said. It's uh, so stupid. So here's the thing. I wouldn't be surprised to see Buxton in the minors. It might just break that way. It might be six weeks, and he's overmatched, and... All right, Danny Santana's your makeshift center fielder for a little while while Buxton goes to figure it out. Then fine, that could happen. Trust me, Miguel Sano's not playing another game in the minor leagues. Unless it's a rehab assignment. Yeah, he's going to like, he will not be playing in the minor right. leagues. That's you know what, I would bet about. that Byron Buxton, this is premature, but I, I have a feeling, and it sounds like you and I are on the same page with this guy, I think Buxton's kind of the same. Now, maybe we get three or four weeks in and he's just not clicking at the plate. One more tune-up session in the minors. Torrey Hunter needed about three yeah. different up and downs before he figured it out. Kadir was one of those guys, right? Yep. Up and down. So there's there's guys that need some up and downs, um, but I would I would bet against that tweet. I would say I'd take the the other side of that bet. Yeah, that me he too. never goes back down. I think he figures it out. You can't like it's he's he's had 150 career, not even like 140 career plate appearances. Right. Okay, so Tom Kelly would tell you. After seeing three or four decades worth of players, young players, you need between 1,000 and 1,500 plate appearances to really feel like you have a handle on who a guy is. Mm-hmm. And look at Brian Dozier, Trevor Plouffe. It took them maybe two or three seasons, and yeah. then all of a sudden, and those guys weren't nearly as talented on the way up as Buxton. Yeah, I would say pump the brakes on the panic. It might take a while, so I, I wouldn't, I'm not willing to throw paper money down on the idea that Buxton won't play for Rochester ever again, but... Uh, don't freak out about it for sure. And including Sano in that tweet was just reckless. I mean, that you must not have watched any baseball games <laughs> last year after July 2nd, and you must not have paid attention during spring training. Miguel Sano might be one of the best hitters in the American League right now at 22, turning 23 this season. <laughs> to say that he might have to spend some time in the minor leagues because he struck out twice on Monday, classic case of opening day uh, baseball evaluation. Um, to get to your points on the other two enigmas, potentially upside. That's the way I look at it. I mean, there's some downside with Young Ho Park for sure, but the Twins are pretty well protected there, I would say. And the upside is, I mean, here's a guy, he got his first major league hit on Monday, which wasn't national news, 
but it was international news. I mean, here's a guy who is a superstar in Korea, and baseball fans in that country are paying attention to what happens to him here. I wouldn't be surprised if he hit... I'm going to go with one of my ranges. You remember how we picked win ranges? Are you going to say you wouldn't be surprised if his home run range was between 5 and 32? Uh, he might. What if he hits more than 32? If you want to be really safe about <laughs> so it. So 5 and 40. If you want to be really safe about it, I'd say like 0 and 50. It'll okay. be in there. Yeah. But if you want me to narrow it down a little bit, I wouldn't be surprised to see anywhere from 15 to like, uh, well, 30 would be a nice total for the Twins in his first year. I think they'd definitely take that. But if, if someone like, told you you could take door, door number one for Byung-Ho Park, and you don't really know what his other numbers would be, but door number one for Byung-Ho Park is 18 home runs. Or you could take whatever's take, behind door number two, but you don't know what's behind door number I'd two. I'd take door number two, I think. Would you? Yeah, I think that I would. I would take the 18 and run. I would take the 18 and just be done with and it. And just have him be your six hitter and yeah. DH. I don't I, I think there's more upside in the bat than that. And I think that what he showed me in Fort Myers was... Um, a guy who's not going to be overmatched. I thought it might be the case that he's overmatched initially. And the skills, the underlying skills, I believe are there. I mean, you just, you almost have to take the Twins at their word on that. The Twins have had nine talent evaluators watching him in South Korea. It's possible Is that more than they had evaluating Sayoshi Nishioka? I don't know. I think they watched his YouTube highlight once and said, all right, this guy gets a lot of hits. Let's bring him over here. They heard he won the batting title and (laughs) tendered him a contract. What's BABIP? I'm not sure. I don't Screw know. it. Let's sign him. Like, I don't know uh, that whole deal. That was before I was covering the team. I'd love to one day it's be. It's all still very much clouded in secrecy. Correct. I recognize nobody, that. Nobody, uh, shocking, nobody wants to really step No one's going to fall on the sword for that when I take it. It's weird, but I would like to one day unravel that mystery. But there should be a 30 for 30 on that, That actually. would be great. How did J.J. Hardy wind up? Getting Mr. Miyagi wrist treatment with the Orioles, hitting 30 bombs, and you wound up with the Marlboro man on your team. What if I told you that the Twins <laughs> traded a 25-home run solid defensive shortstop for a chance at glory? And a bidet. Yeah, and a bidet. <laughs> and a bidet in your clubhouse. that story. <laughs> Which still uh, exists. True There's story. a bidet in the Twins clubhouse. Yes. Nishioka contractually demanded a bidet. True story. It, uh, I've never used a bidet, but my guess is... Those Twins players are feeling very refreshed after a trip to the bathroom. I'm not going to touch that one. I'm just going to say that I think there is more upside than 18 home runs, even in year one. And I think he'll probably be better next year. I think that's a safe assumption. Um, I think uh, So that's two enigmas that I see pretty good upside for the Twins, especially at what they're paying. I mean, over the next four years, they're going to pay Byung-Ho Park and Byron Buxton the equivalent of like what Nalaska will make this year. Okay, don't you find that kind of funny? We focus so much, even just in this town, Joe Maurer, $23 million, get this worthless, overpaid piece of garbage off the roster. Nolasco, 12.5, go around the league and different, different players. Yet no one ever brings up the same amount of outrage for a player like Miguel Sano. Pay Miguel Sano what he's worth. Damn because... it, this is a travesty. How can he only be making $520,000? Yeah, right. I demand he makes $15 million. We never demand that the guy who's underpaid make $15 million. It's only that the guy who makes too much money gives it back. Well, that's the whole system that's at fault there, and it's the owners. And if you want to get real economical, we can probably skip this conversation. But uh, 30 owners in Major League Baseball hire a commissioner to work for them to guide this conversation uh, to make sure that baseball economics stay affordable for the owners. They continue having... Uh, People fund the game. TV networks paying a lot of money to do this. And let's make sure that we don't have to pay players exactly what they're worth because that would be bad for our bottom line. If you had to pay, first of all, there'd be a lot more risk in the system, which I think is fine. Uh, There's a lot of risk in the American economy, and in most cases that works out just fine. With paying young players, there would be a ton of risk introduced. The Twins, how would you like this? You'd have to watch Miguel Sano from July 2nd Take his minor league numbers into account, but watch him from July 2nd to the end of the year, six weeks of which he had a torn hamstring or whatever, strained hamstring, whatever they want to call it, and figure out, all right, shoot, well, that guy's going to make $20 million on the open market next year. How would you like to figure out if you were going to pay him that money or not? Luckily for the Twins, they won't have to figure that out for five more years, but that, that would introduce a whole lot of chaos to the baseball system. I'd love it. Here, I'm going to quiz you real quick. Okay. So Mike Trout, who, what is he now? Let me see. 20, 23 or 24, somewhere in there. He's been in the league now for, for like five years. And so last year, that even. 
He's not even. He's 24. He's 24 and a half. So he just he just signed, and it kicked in last year. So this is the second year of a six-year, $144 million contract. Mm-hmm. It's the first big contract he signed. How much money, according to Fangraphs, has Mike Trout... So he's been paid... So what did he make last year? He made about 20... So he's been paid less than $30 million in his career. Because he, he was making 500000 and I think they he, gave him a million... And it might have been a handful more, but let's say he's made around thirty million to this point in his career. And I don't even know that. I don't. I don't know what he would have made last year. Because uh, you say the contract kicked in this year. It kicked in last year. Oh, so he made like twenty some last okay. year. He was paid. All right. How much money would you would you estimate, according to Fangraphs, which does player dollar values, yeah. has he been worth to this point in his career? Well, how much money, if you were to pay him, based on the economics of baseball, here's how much money is available to the players. God, here's question. how productive Mike Trout has been. And here's the dollar figure assigned to him the last five years combined. So, all right. Fangraphs uses, uh, they use wins above replacement, and they basically try and come up with a market rate in millions of dollars for the marginal win. You're going to get close here because you're thinking analytically about this. And, well, you challenged me. They, it's fluctuated, and it's kind of ever-increasing, I think, at least right now. We might be in a bubble. Who knows? But for right now, anyways, that number is continually going up. It, in his rookie year, I would have guessed it was around like $5.5 Now it might be more like $7 million, six and a half, seven million. Per win, something. you're saying. Per, per win, win above replacement. Per win. So basically what they're saying is that on the open market, teams are willing to pay about six and a half or $7 million dollars for every win above replacement. So a three-win player, theoretically, is worth $21 million that year. And Trout, God, Trout's had some great seasons. So I want to make sure I'm getting the years right. 2012 is when You're he You're going to nail this. This is great. 2013 would have been his first, like, superstar year. And so if he was worth 10 wins... Maybe he's worth about 30 wins in that time, I'll say. 28 wins, and if you're paying an average of $6 million a win, he's probably been worth somewhere between 150 and $175 million. That's a really good guess, and your logic, your logic was good on that. So his first big breakout year was 2013. Right. That's what he had two MVP, uh, 2012, I'm sorry. Wait, no, you said 13? So 12, he dibble-dabbled. And 13, he was a superstar. Uh, uh, 2012, he played 139 games, hit 30 home runs, stole 49 bases. Damn, and had, so I had the uh, year yeah, off. It's insane. That All was right. the year where he should have won the MVP so as, 2000, a, as a rookie. 2011, he got his feet wet, struggled a little bit. 2012, yeah. he was Mike Trout. The answer, according to Fangraphs, he's been worth $282 million. What? Oh, my gosh. Yet no one. Yeah. So people get outraged. Mauer, that overpaid piece of crap. Yeah. Okay, Mike Trout has been playing for nickels on the right. dollar, according to, if you just compare his performance to right. the prize pool in baseball that goes to all the players. Well, and I Man, will say, that's insane. Uh, love fan graphs. It's a frequent destination for me. But there is something to that sort of economic argument that's like a little... I mean, well, a, the answer isn't the answer isn't thirty million though. Right. He's, are, he's been vastly underpaid for his career. Correct, correct, exactly. Yeah. I, I, we're debating semantics here. Um, <laughs> At one point, he was worth in 2013. So his his first MVP season, he was worth 77.4 million dollars. Yeah, but who's paying 77 million? Like to me, and this gets into the whole. Antitrust. I think a guy in my fantasy auction paid <laughs> that for him on Saturday. Actually, <laughs> might get it's what uh, I paid for Bryce Harper. Damn it! You guys might get a good return on that investment. I would say this conversation, I don't want it to dovetail into an argument against antitrust in baseball and why there's only you know 30 teams and uh, how the open market's not really truly an open and fair market. Uh, but I will say that the current market does sort of dictate the price, and if you're paying $33 million for Clayton Kershaw, you're not going to pay $77 million for Mike Trout. So I'm curious, now that we're talking about this, the third and final enigma that we haven't really talked about, we talked about him a little bit, is Joe Maurer. How much has Joe Maurer been worth in his career, according to Fangraphs? Because I'd be willing to bet you that, according to those calculations, he was very, very underpaid when he was winning his three batting titles. Yes. He was underpaid when he was winning his MVP award in 2009. And then that's after... That's when the contract kicked in. So you got to the other factor for Fangraphs too is positional value. So you're worth more if you play a tougher position. 
You're wor- it's because it's harder to find good catchers. So good not center only fielders. is Joe Maurer getting a boost in his wins above replacement because he plays a position like catcher that does not have a lot of offensive threats. He's also being valued higher because every team needs a catcher, right. and there aren't 30 good catchers. It's why surgeons get paid more than cashiers, right? It's just, it's, it's, it takes a greater skill set. It's harder to find surgeons, mm-hmm. and it's just a more important position to society. And it's why podcast hosts should be paid more than surgeons, right? right? I mean, yeah. I've been arguing that well, for yeah. two and a half years now. And instead, we're not even paid more than, <laughs> we're not even paid like cashiers. <laughs> yeah, this is a labor nice. of love. Okay, you want to take a guess as, as to what Joe Maurer's no, been No, I, I don't want to go through the math because I don't have his... Uh, I mean, he's had a much longer career, too. It's so actually less than out. Mike Trout. Yeah, I believe that. No, he played when the economics were not quite what they were with Mike Trout. He, probably, he played for a decade. In 2005, I'm willing to bet... 2006, Maurer won a batting title. I think that was his first batting title in uh, 2006. Might have been his second one, but yeah. It, it, anyways, he was not... I mean, you weren't paying $7 million for a marginal win. In 2006. I mean, that's 10 years he ago. He was worth $28 million in 2006 and, and not wins? making anywhere near that, obviously. <laughs> Correct. And worth is in quotation marks because this is fan grass valuation. But it is interesting that for a guy who was making 500000 550 whatever, uh, not exactly being paid his due. How much has he been worth in his career, according to Fangraphs? Two hundred seventy some million dollars. Two seventy. Yep. But there were years where, so he signed the big contract. It kicked in in 2010. Correct. He was worth $48 million in 2009 as an MVP, MVP $35 million in 2008. This is as a batting champion, 400-plus on-base, premium position player, and that's just something that gets overlooked in the conversation. It all balances out over the course of time. He's overpaid now. He was underpaid earlier. It's probably fairly even, if not still skewed to him being underpaid for his career. Based, on, excuse me, based on earlier production. Yeah, I mean he's he's overpaid right now. I will I won't argue that for one second. But yeah, I mean it's interesting. It, we generally have a pretty dumbed down economic conversation every time this stuff comes out, and I'm always waiting for the year that someone talks about the fact that Major League Baseball's antitrust exemptions from the United States government help create and prop up this system. But we don't really want to have that conversation. It gets into this weird. It can go political. I'm not even trying to be political with that. But, like, someone was, oh, here, somebody was ranting against you and tagging me on Twitter, which, by the way, thank you for that. I I love getting Phil's hate tweets. Um, (laughs) If you have hate tweets for Phil, make sure you tag me, at Derek Wetmore, on Twitter. This guy basically said, you know, we, we, uh, we earned the right to rant and rave about the Twins not spending enough money when we publicly funded their ballpark. And this is not political. I don't think my political views play into this. I am just objectively think that publicly funding sports stadiums is a stupid thing to do. And so I said that to him. I said, you, yeah, I mean, of course you can argue if you want to. If, if you want to get mad about the Twins not spending more money this year, that's your right. But it has nothing to do with a publicly funded stadium. Like, you can just say whatever, like, within reason, the First Amendment gives you that freedom to See, do it. Yeah, that's the thing. I, that, I don't get that argument. You're, what you're saying is correct. You can, whether you paid public money for the stadium or not, you can, you can about bitch it. about whatever you want to because it's the United States of America. Right. But you paid money because the system in professional sports leverages cities and people like you, the fans, to pay for stadiums, otherwise teams threaten to leave. So you were leveraged, um, and I would even add this too, that just because you are paying as a public, or we are, we were paying for it too Mm -hmm. in terms of taxes, just because we are paying for that stadium, we're paying for the right to be entertained underneath the sort of unwritten guidelines of how professional sports ownership clusters operate. You can pay for the right to be entertained by us, or we'll find another city that will pay X percentage of, of the cost for a stadium right. for the privilege of being entertained by us. But like we talked about this on my radio show, United, the Twins are 18th in payroll going into the season, $105 million payroll. Mm-hmm. 18th, I, I, as long as they're between 10th and 18th, or I should say 10th and like 21st or 22nd in payroll, middle market payroll, I'm never going to have a huge problem with their payroll. Yeah. Because I don't think it's it's realistic to expect a team that's 15th in market size, that's 15th in TV market size, but actually among Major League Baseball teams, last or second to last in satellite uh, cable subscriber rates, 
We can get into all this stuff if you want to. The main point is... I don't. The twins... Yeah, I don't either. The, the twins, <laughs> unless a billionaire owner goes into his own pockets, mm -hmm. the twins will never have the same revenue coming in as the top 10 to 12 teams in baseball. Yeah. They've got one of the worst TV deals in baseball. So now we get to the, the other place in the conversation, which is should billionaire owners be expected to go into their own checking accounts or whatever account, savings account, and spend an extra $50 million on payroll. I don't realistically expect that. And only one owner really does that, and it's Mike Illich. And he's yeah. on the record with the Tigers saying, I want to win before I die. So yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shower this roster with money, mm -hmm. and hopefully you guys can win a World Series before I die. I'd rather pressure the front office of a mid-market team into making better decisions on a day-by-day -day basis. Yeah. How do you find two or three little edges in your front office, on rosters, mm -hmm. that undercut what the big money teams are doing? And they might have with Bionho Park. We'll yes. have to wait and see. Yep. Um, but to speak for the irritated fan, because they hear that and say, you know, a billionaire shouldn't have to dig into his pockets, and the counter-argument would be, Right, but we as a public shouldn't have to dig into our pockets and help him build a playground. And oh, I agree with that. And I agree with that, too. But that's already done. Correct. So, <laughs> so we're not disagreeing on the premise. I think that neither side should have to fund either side's entertainment. I, I don't think that uh, Minnesota or Hennepin County should have had to pay for this beautiful palace. I mean, I'm glad it's here. I love Target Field. It's a cool Ob palace. Objectively, as a baseball fan who lives in Minneapolis... I love Target Field, but I don't think that the public should have had to pay for it. But that conversation is one that should have been had 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now, if you want to get mad at it, well, that's just like your choice. That's wasted emotion. That's wasted energy. That's just opinion. like your choice, man. That's just like your opinion, man. Movie reference I haven't even seen. <laughs> yeah. I wish we, we should, I think at some point, maybe we do this with our Touch em All listeners. What's that? I think we should have a movie viewing of Major League and other movies that you haven't seen. I would love that. that. But that the listeners would be interested in. I thought about that in the past, about going to, like, uh, Lagoon or whatever, renting out a movie theater and just getting all Touch em All listeners together and watch a baseball movie. So here is your task, Touch em All listeners. Send us sports movies or baseball movies that you would actually come and hang out with us if we rented out a theater in Uptown or something. Let's take a step back from that. Would you even come watch a movie with us? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then give us some movies you'd want to watch. But my guess is most of these people want to keep us at arm's length as much as possible. Like, hey, man, I download your podcast. I love Touch Em All, but boy, I do not want to be seen with you in That's public. as far as I want this relationship to go. <laughs> Stay tuned for 60-second AP News headlines.